Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, A.L. Levy. Hey guys, A.L. Levy here with the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. If you notice that my voice sounds a little different, well, it's because we just got back from the URM Summit 2017 in Orlando, Florida, and spent about four or five days of talking to over 100 people non-stop. It was an unbelievable time, and I really think that those of you who didn't go, you should go in 2018. Um, If you're really looking to branch out and meet people in the community of audio engineers that it may not be a big one where you live. Well, this is a worldwide community. People came from all over the world. We had incredible speakers, incredible master classes. We have a great lineup for next year already. People call this the time of their life, and I'm just blown away by how positive it is. And I know that people made business relationships and friendships for life out of it. And URM Summit. 2018.com. Uh, my voice is a victim of the 2017 one, but really, 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 you guys got to go. Um, and I believe that everybody who went will tell you the same thing. So that said, got a cool episode of the podcast for you. My guest today is Nick Sampson, who is on Nail the Mix this month. He's a guitar player, songwriter, producer, mixer out of Michigan. He works out of 37 recording studios and He is a phenomenal guitar player, uh, as evidenced by his work on I Am Abomination and a bunch of his productions. And he's also worked with different artists, including Asking Alexandria, Born of Osiris, We Came as Romans, Of Mice and Men, The Word Alive, and Veer and Faith, Polyphia, and many others. He came up under Joey Sturgis. He's one of his protégés, and Joey taught him well, because, man, this guy is one sick engineer and a phenomenal a guitar player and just a brilliant guy all around. Wait till you hear about some of his future ideas for guitar building. So sorry about my voice. Without further ado, I give you Nick Sampson. Nick, welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine podcast. How's life? It's good. Having a little bit of time off in December, so I'm working on guitar stuff and trying to get through this winter. Now, when you say working on guitar stuff, do you mean building a guitar? Yeah, yeah. I'm building a, another one trying to get it ready for NIM to take this year. So why? Like, I mean, what brought that on? The fact of building a guitar? That seems so crazy to me. Even though I know a few of you guys who actually enjoy doing it, but like, what the hell? Uh, For me, it's it's kind of a natural thing to get into because I've always been into like mechanical stuff and uh, like machines and stuff like that. And we have like a CNC machine now that's like real easy to well, it's not easy, but I've learned how to, to program it and everything. So building a guitar is more in the computer for me now. Like I, I designed it on the computer and then just cut it with the machine. And uh, it's it's a lot more easy to get from idea to actual real thing instead of like having to get a, like a whole bunch of different tools that are traditionally used to build. So it's kind of like <clears throat> a little easier to get a final product out of it now and more of a reality for me. So... I just, uh, there's some, some cool stuff that I wanted to, to try out. And now that I have the machine and everything, I can do that. And, like what? Uh, um, well, I have a kind of a modular thing going on. Like you'll be able to change your bridge and change your pickups really like super easily. Um, change the scale length, change the string count, a uh, bunch of other cool stuff that's going on. I'm also integrating some multi-channel stuff too. So... Hold on on this modular stuff. 
Um, okay, so I haven't really been playing much for the past few years, so I don't know if this is normal or not, but is it normal? Oh, well, It my- sounds crazy to me. No, it's not. No one makes one yet. I mean, there, there are versions okay. of modular guitars, but the only ones I've seen are like ergonomical changes. Like, you could change an armrest or like make it okay. easy to switch your neck or whatever, but like no one's ever done it to this extent to where the guitar is like completely versatile. That's so incredible, especially for engineers or studio guitar players because I think one of the I mean one of the coolest things about having a studio that's long standing or where there's multiple producers involved is that you tend to have a ton of studio instruments and so one guitar doesn't work out for a part just go get another but that's not the case for everybody I mean most people don't have you know that the luxury of having like 10 to 15 guitars uh just laying around so this could really come in and solve that problem for a lot of people yeah yeah um the way i've kind of always likened it is uh api's 500 series um when those came out i was like super excited about that because i could have like a a variety of different preamps or whatever in the same you know box and obviously the, the parts got cheaper as they were smaller so it was uh it was really cool to to see how that format kind of like spawned an entire market for these like modules 500 series modules that you put in that's kind of where i got the idea was to to do it like that and now that there's like boxes with thousands of guitar amps in there like the kemper and the axe effects and all that like why not do it with guitars you know totally and my question is would the pickups that you can change out be proprietary or will it fit normal well, pickups um the way that i'm doing it um it'll fit normal pickups it'll fit whatever anyone wants to put in there um i'm toying with the idea of kind of releasing like an hdk when i when i get it all going to where if people do have like their own cnc or are good with a router and like want a template to make the parts like i, I wouldn't have a problem with people doing that but um the plan is to sell like the pickups in my store and also sell like all the hardware that will work with the guitar so it would be semi-proprietary but i'm not opposed to the idea of having you know if someone's got like a hundred pickups laying around they don't want to rebuy them they just want to use them and they want them to fit perfect with the guitar then i'm going to have options for that for sure so if someone just wants their emgs yeah yeah the- you'll say you'll be able to uh, switch between active and passive no problem now th- that's a really badass with uh with bridge styles, what are the are you gonna have like floating and stopped and yeah, uh, so like the challenge in designing it was making it fit the Evertune because that's the biggest bridge that I've ever tried to you know put in a guitar. And so like if it fits the Evertune the way I have the design going, it'll fit anything. So that's how I kind of like determine my routes and everything, but it'll fit Evertune, uh, fixed bridge. Tremolo bridge, yeah, fanned, multi-scale, to where like every string has a different bridge, but they're in different spots for uh, intonation purposes. But yeah, it's now, it's pretty versatile. Evertune is quite a surgical operation to get installed in a guitar. Um, so you're saying that you're going to be able to literally just like put one in, like yeah, like well, swap it, swap it out a 500 series. Boom, I got my Evertune in, good to go. Yeah, I actually have a I have one guitar that I've used on a couple of records. Uh, we use an Era Fit for a King, um, the Eternal Rain, New Rain re-release, uh, 
couple, a bunch of cool records we used it on already. But yeah, it, it does uh, just kind of slip in there, bolt it in, and then you're wow. done. Yeah. It, well, hey, if if you feel like uh, showing people, if it's not like top secret, bring it with you to Florida when we do Nail the Mix in a couple of weeks, because I'm sure that people would be like, wow, that's fucking cool. Yeah, definitely. I'll... Uh, I'll definitely do that. What were you about to say, though? I cut you off. Well, I was I was going to say you said something about uh, the Evertune being a surgical thing to install. And it, and it is if you're using it to installing it into a traditional guitar because you need to make room for it um, because the guitar was designed to not ha- like have all that room taken out of it. But the way I'm designing mine, that is already gone. Like, you'll be able to fit anything in there. And then the only drawback... Or not drawback. The only uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? The only hindrance in like, in actually putting a different bridge in is just getting a new module to put it in. That'll be tailor made to the bridge, and then the module will fit in the guitar. That's really not that big of a deal. Yeah, it's it's super simple. Four screws. Wow, man, you're gonna piss off a lot of guitar techs. <laughs> yeah, it would be. Uh, I had I had some crazy ideas for like guitars that like kind of guide you through the setup process with sensors and stuff, but that's way down the road for sure. Man, isn't the future amazing? It is. Uh, It's crazy. It's like technology is going crazy everywhere. This is one area that I didn't, I mean, I kind of do foresee that everything is going to be automated Mm -hmm. and the real currency is going to be creativity. You know, maybe not in five years, but we're going in that direction for sure. But for some reason, in my head, I did not see guitar setup becoming an automated process already. And well, it's amazing that people are already thinking about it. Yeah. Well, anything with process can be automated. So it's it's like a, it, when a tech looks at a guitar, he's checking certain things like, like neck relief and then string height and all this stuff. And those are all things that you can measure. Like, But the, the problem is you need some kind of like brain to take all that data and compare it against each other and then come out with a result and then the algorithms like that pre-programmed like the guitar tech would be in place of the algorithm in that in that case but yeah i've been kind of trying to theorize that to because a lot of people have trouble with setups you know it's like it gets crazy oh yeah and there's a lot of like intricate stuff that you got to be like weary of when you're doing that. And there really aren't that many good techs out there. So, I mean, I'm sure that there will always be, or at least in the foreseeable future, say that you did come up with this in the next five years. I'm sure that the top end techs are not going to just be suddenly replaced by a machine. Cause I think that there's a certain, there's an art to it. And also the value of, you know, working for somebody or under somebody for years and years and years and knowing, exactly what their preference is and you know getting getting that touch i think that that's going to definitely take some time for a machine to to do just like with everything else but for the 99 percent of other people who play guitar and try to set it up mm-hmm. that's gonna be a godsend man because yeah holy shit one of the worst nightmares ever for me as a tracking engineer is having the guitar player who says he knows how to set up guitars. Mm-hmm. It's <laughs> like you know it's going to be fucked up. <laughs> yeah, in some cases that that definitely happens. But this uh, that that idea is more for the the kid who's like into new music and new tunings and stuff, and then he realizes when he tunes the guitar all wonky that the neck is weird and it's bent 
and he doesn't know why. And this will kind of help that kid out, you know. That There are a lot of that kid. Yeah, for right sure. Now. So do you have any sort of ETA, like even in your wildest imagination for it? I mean, ETA depends on what happens. Um, if I can find some people to partner with and kind of help bring it out of the works, then it'll come a lot faster. But hopefully um, this year I'll be able to do that and, and get it rolling. I, I wish you Godspeed. Well, thank you. Now let's talk about you some. Um, lots of people know you uh, both as an engineer producer and as a guitarist, guitar person, guitar everything. But what came first, recording or guitar? Guitar, for sure. I started playing I at 12. So. Yeah, I was a little baby. Did you learn to record in order to be able to capture your own guitar playing? Yeah, that was why I started recording. Uh, probably a few years, I mean, the first thing I ever recorded on was, uh, I had this like Digitech GNX3 multi-effects pedal thing. It was like super high-tech at the Ooh, time. Yeah. yeah, and it had a recording feature, and um, and I would just like lay a riff down, and then then you could like kind of overdub yourself and play over yourself and loop it. So that's that's kind of how I learned about harmony and like what modes worked with what other modes against like for harmony and all that. And that obviously led to getting a computer that was capable enough to handle a DAW. And then I just started chipping away and learning like all these different things. By the time I was like 16 or 17, um, that's when we started I Am Abomination, and then I did all our demos. And I was always, I'd been recording for a couple of years at that point, but nothing serious, just demos and stuff and like learning the ropes. I had a slightly more stupid version of that for when I learned harmony, because I'm a little mm. older than you. I had a Walkman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I used to like hit record and play a riff, and then I would play it back and then try to come up with a harmony over it. Oh, yeah. Definitely. It worked. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because, I mean, there is science to it. You can you can figure it out pretty easily. When, if you're doing, like, the diatonic kind of harmonies where they, uh, the scale degrees in the in the modes follow each other, um, you, you move up two degrees. If you play, like, a, a major scale and then you, on the strings, the I guess it would be what, the three and the five. If you start on the five and play the, the scale from the five at the same time you play it from the one, that's a... A perfect modal harmony. It's cra It's crazy how I learned that from a GNX3, but, I mean, that's how it happened. Did you ever study it formally after that, or did you just, that? that's kind of how you learned and you just developed it on your own from there? Um, I was a fan of cyberfret.com. That was that was kind of like the, the big publication for theory stuff uh, back in that day. But, yeah, I, uh, I never had any, like, formal kind of training in... Uh, in guitar at all. I've i took a few lessons, but it just wasn't for me. Um, I was more comfortable in, in the basement with the uh, with the dial up Google and stuff. So that's the what didn't you like about lessons? Um, I mean, I guess I just kind of expected a little more, like a, a little more out of it. Uh, I was a kid at the time, so I was you know going in there like, oh, I'm, I'm gonna learn how to shred in two weeks. You know, take these lessons, uh -huh. and uh, I mean the. The teacher that I was I was with wasn't like he wasn't like a bad guitar player or anything, but he just he wasn't in the direction that I wanted to go. I wanted to learn like what Michelangelo Badia was doing and like Petrucci was doing, and he was like, "Oh well, I got this tab book. Let's let's learn this ACDC song." And I was like, 
I guess it, I mean, I was impatient that, that you could chalk it up to that. I was way too impatient. So did you learn how to shred in two weeks on your own? No. Once you fired the teacher? <laughs> no, definitely not. But, um, I mean, I guess that drive of wanting to learn how to play in that style led me through the proper channels in the search engine and led me to the right information and then, which led me here. So I guess I did it right. It sounds like it. I mean, absolutely. So you were 14, you said, or 12 when you started playing guitar? Started at 12, yeah. What was your uh, practice regimen like back then? All the time, every day. Um, Go to school, come home, play guitar, eat, sleep guitar. How long did that last? Um, That lasted until probably until I started touring with I Am Abomination, which I was 17. So probably about five years. And what about now? Do you still practice or do you? I I, I practice once in a while. It's nowhere near as much as I used to because unfortunately the the focus has kind of shifted from uh, guitar as like a, a hobby to guitar as a job. So I try to like... I have other hobbies now, like building guitars and stuff like that. So, like, I, I try not to sit and uh, like practice that much. But I, I practice every day at work because I always have guitar at my hands. But um, I never like sit and drill stuff as much as I I want to anymore. But I have a theory that uh, after a certain point in your development, you really only need to do drilling every once in a while or for specific stuff, like. I need to nail this solo on this part, and this one passage is a little bit out of my range. I'm going to drill this. But I feel like when you're leading up to that point of somewhat freedom Mm -hmm. on the instrument, you need to put in somewhere between three and six years of living, breathing, and eating it. Every single good player or great player I've ever known like does that at some point. And hopefully it's when they're between 12 and 17 or 18 and have no real responsibilities. Yeah. But uh, like you have to do that. There's no way around it. You have to put in a few years of nonstop grind. And I feel like after that, like once you really learn the instrument, then you can really just start visualizing what you want to do. I mean, obviously you got to keep playing mm. because your your muscles will deteriorate, but I don't think it's as necessary. Yeah, it. I mean, you get your 10,000 hours in anything and it's going to lead to something where you understand it, like like in the back of your hand. So um, yeah, I, I think that the super, super practice regimen stuff I got out of the way, like when I was younger. So it, that would not be possible now with the mortgage and all that stuff so i'm glad i did when i was young kids when your parents tell you to practice and that you'll regret it if you don't it's true he ain't lying I, my parents uh used to do that to me with like piano and violin you're gonna regret it if you don't practice more you're gonna regret it if you don't practice more. i was like yeah fuck you i want to play with transformers <laughs> for sure uh, but now i kind of regret a little bit. Um, but I definitely think that the less responsibilities you have in life, the more you should just go balls out on whatever creative thing it is you want to do, whether it's engineering or guitar or photography or whatever, like take full advantage of the years where life doesn't matter that much. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. And Nowadays, when you encounter guitar players as a tracking engineer who may not be as skilled as you, what, how do you approach tracking them? Do you try to track it for them or do you try to take like a leadership role where you try to 
coach them to be better? Like, what's your, what are your thoughts on that? Um, it depends. Um, I'm always the first thing I'm going to do is always try to like coach them and analyze what they're doing. Because most of the time, if I hear something wrong, I know what's happening. Whether it be like that too much hand pressure on a palm mute or wrong position or the wrong pick or something like that. So I'll try to like analyze that first, and then from there, if I think that I can rectify it with some coaching, then I'll do that, and and then we'll give it give it shots. And if if it gets too crazy, I'll just move on. And if it gets to a point where like they they can play the part, but it's not like as clean as it needs to be, then I'll I'll just ask them if I can do it. Sometimes you know. You know, I mean, it's funny, like because we talk about this a lot on the podcast or in tutorials and stuff about how the smallest things like the angle of your pick or the pressure mm -hmm. on the left hand makes such a huge difference in tone. And I feel like a lot of people kind of don't listen. And we just did this, the URM summit last week where Andrew Wade did a guitar masterclass and he brought people in front of the class and literally made those tweaks to their mm -hmm. playing and it was just like minds blown. Just like, you know, shifting the pick angle 15 degrees and suddenly they've got good tone. Yep, yep, it, it's huge. Uh, the, the tone starts in the string. You put the energy into the string and if you put it in wrong, it's just everything else is gonna just snowball effect from there and just be bad everywhere. It, imagine if you played guitar, but like hit pinch harmonics on everything <laughs> like well, that's how you learn how to play you know and just you thumbed it all and it just you were like why do it sound like shit but you don't realize that like you're totally screwing it up you know that's an extreme that, way that's to look at it great that's a great way to look at it because it's an extremity that definitely proves the point because it you know it might not be something as major as a pinch harmonic but it could be something that's like 15 percent as bad Mm -hmm. is playing a pinch harmonic that just kind of starts your tone off in a in a way that's just not very salvageable or not incredibly workable. Um, you know, it reminds me, it's kind of funny how many times I get this question and it, for years I've been getting this question. This question won't go away. It's like, I ha a band sent me a really shitty DI. Can I uh, use a transient designer on the DI to fix it? And, you know, like what kind of... What kind of stuff can you do to doctor it? And I, there's a couple things you can do to help it a little bit. But really, really, if you want to get down to it, you, you got to replay it. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say it for sure. Like you gotta if it if it's if you're worried about your your name being on it and it's your reputation on the line, and someone hears it and it's like, oh wow, that some people will think that it's your fault, you know. So you gotta you gotta nip that in the bud for sure. Yeah, I, I have made that mistake in the past, man. There was this one record where uh, I checked out mentally. I, mm -hmm. I shouldn't have, but I did. Um, the guitar player recorded his own tracks, and he didn't tell me that he wasn't using a pick. It was a heavy band. Uh -huh. And I, like, I could not get any attack out of it. It's like fucking trying to EQ myself under the table. It was not working. And then it turns out, Dude played all the riffs with his fucking thumb. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. Definitely, yes. Was he, like, at least, like, 
slapping it with his thumb, or was he just? No, 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 no. He like, fing- he he finger blasted it the whole time. Yeah. Yes. He, no. Yeah. Oh yeah. He, oh. He, yeah. He he definitely finger blasted it the whole time. I bet you that sounded pretty pr- pretty round. It was so impossible to pull any attack out of that tone, mm-hmm. and like I became that kid that bother that like that bothers me with that question disclaimer questions don't bother me but uh that one does a little bit just because i feel like we put it out so much that like you just need to capture it right at the source yeah like you got to believe us you need to get it right at the source but i was that kid for a second trying to put transient designers on the di and like Mm -hmm. seeing what the fuck i could do and nothing would work yeah um yeah you know there's no happy ending to the story. Definitely that's, not. That, yeah, that's... you gotta. You can't expect someone to just make you sound amazing. It's like singers have it easy with autotune, kind of. But uh, the the whole guitar playing, recording thing. There's there's a million elements that all go into making a good guitar sound. So it's not an and easy task. It really does start with the player too. Mm-hmm. That's the tough part. But the thing is, it, here's where I think the whole misconception about it starts with the player is it, you don't have to be a great player. You just have to know how to hold the guitar right and play in time. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I'm not saying you can suck and get away with it, but there's certain genres of music that do not require you to be an amazing guitar player. Mm-hmm. But agree. play in the pocket, hit the strings, you know, with the right velocity on your pick, with the right angles, um, use the right pressure with your left hand. And uh, that right there will make a massive difference. We're not saying that... Every single guitar player in every single band needs to practice 12 hours a day for five years straight to even hope to being good enough to be tracked on a record. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the variance between two different players, if you hand the same dude the same guitar and you have him play the same part and you record both, when it's in a DI form, it's, it's astonishing how different they are. It's crazy. If you've ever done that, if you haven't, try it. it you'll it'll blow your mind. Oh, I, I've done it many times. A really good example of that is uh, Ola England and Keith Marrow mm-hmm. did that. Um, it was like three or four years ago. They put out a video of each other doing that um, because they're both really good players. Um, and you know, being on the internet, they get that question all the time, or got that question all the time, and so they put out a video where they both play the exact same riffs on the same rig um like I, I believe in person just pass the guitar back and forth and it was like yeah totally different oh yeah night and day the same applies for drums yeah. uh when uh when recording drum samples for a record i will almost always have uh our drum tech matt brown do the actual sample hits because he just the way he hits is so much better than everyone else um, yeah, I it agree just with sounds that. better. Yeah, Chris from Ocean's Eight, Alaska. He blows my mind with how how hard he hits the drums, man. It's like, it's like perfect every time. He sounds like a robot, but he's. I mean, I, I really didn't do much to the drums so, sound on that record, but he he's crazy, dude. Like, seeing him play was just the gnarliest stuff. What about it? Like how hard he hits and just dude, in time. Like, I mean, his posture looks stiff, but he's actually really calculated with it. And he, he explained it to me. He's like, he explained his posture with like the force of in which he hits like the drums, like snare and the toms. So he like 
orients himself in a way where he can get maximum stick swing and his fulcrum is like the perfect point to where all the energy exerts into the skin. So like the way he sets his pedals up and the way he sets his kit up, everything is like real meticulous with him. And he, he, you'll just watch him play something and I, I would laugh a lot. I'd be in the control room laughing because it was so good. <laughs> and then it would kind of mess him up sometimes because I'd just be in there dying and <laughs> because he was just shredding so hard, you know. But, yeah, like, drummer to drummer, guitar player to guitar player. Like, it, it's crazy. That's But that gives it an identity, though. So I think totally. that's cool. Man, it, it's funny. Sometimes, and I've noticed this in lots of sessions, sometimes the first reaction people have when someone does something ungodly on an instrument is to bust out laughing. Yeah, it is. It is. Cause you're, I, you I just can't believe too. it. Yeah. Alex Rudinger does that to me. Like tracking him is just like fucking hilarious. Cause he's like, what the hell dude? Yeah. You're, how, you just, how are you? You're, real? <laughs> yeah. you're a robot. Yeah. Like how, like, do you actually like wake up and go to sleep and stuff? And like, some days get depressed and other days you like order a pizza or something. Like, are you real? You just eat and turn, turns out he is. <laughs> he eats <laughs> electrons. Dude, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> I mean, look, if I was, uh, if I was one day pulled aside and told that these types of dudes eat electrons, like <laughs> I, I will not, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Like, I definitely feel like there's something up with the way that they're wired yeah, upstairs. It, their brain resources, man, they, they just devote it all to like one task, like everything else. They just devote everything to one task and just practice and practice and practice. And your brain can do some crazy stuff if you give it enough fuel, man. It's like, it's gnarly. Well, I can tell you with Alex, man, uh, tracking him is very, I don't want, this is not meant to sound negative at all. So like, Annoying is not the right word. So, like, please understand this is not in any way, shape, or form negative. It's just intense because he will play and he has the highest standards in the world. Mm -hmm. But then the moment he's done tracking, he goes over to his practice kit and it's just like... <laughs> like, <laughs> while you're setting up the next take, it could be, it could be two minutes, it could be five minutes, it could be 45 depending on what's going on, but it's just like done recording all day. <laughs> yeah. Chris, like, Chris had his practice fucking pad. day. <laughs> the practice pad. I remember that we would all try to like, like on downtime in between like sessions and stuff. I would, I'd like Chris teach me, how to, teach me how to blast dude. And he would be like, all right, this is how you do it. And he'd like show me. And then by the end of the session, I could actually do it because he was showing me so much. And we, would sit on this practice pad for like hours, me, him, and, and Jake, and just shred drumsticks on it and like try to see who could last the longest. So obviously, Chris won every single time, but it was fun. What did you do? What was the highlight of uh, recording that record? Teaching my producer how to blast. Yes, absolutely. Can you uh, tell me how to blast? Because I've always wondered, and it uh, it see that actually seems like a really inhuman technique. Dude, it's it's all about rebounds. You have to put. You have to find the fulcrum on the stick, which is the point and it's in its weight where it will rock evenly on your finger there. And then you kind of you grip it loosely. I mean, everyone has different techniques, but this is what I was taught. You grip it loosely and then use either your uh, middle finger or ring finger and bounce the stick into the snare drum. And then since you have that loose grip on it, once it hits the drum, 
it's going to feed back and then it's going to reset itself pretty much. And then you kind of catch it with your finger again. And then it's more of like moving your finger really fast instead of moving your entire arm really fast, you know, and then you get your wrist motion in there and it, you just start getting faster and faster. And that kind of blew my mind. Cause I always assumed people were just like so tuned in with their muscles that they could just spaz out and just like fucking incredible hulking it out. Yeah. Just like <laughs> veins bursting. Just, uh, but yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot easier than I thought it'd be, and it's a lot different than I thought it'd be. The way that you get that technique across. But I suck at drums, but I, I try. You know. But you wanted to learn how to blast. I just want to blast. I just want to play Necrophages covers all day. Man, when's that new record coming? Never. R.I.P. Dude, I was gonna do like a three-song thing called Necrophagist and just release it for people who are waiting, because <laughs> I am, and I'm like, man. I, I could get close to this style. I should probably try that. But then it, that I listened happened, to but. it the other day. I actually listened to Epitaph the other day and was like, my God, this is fucking good. Dude, it's, it's timeless. It's crazy. Yeah. For a death metal record, it's it's absolutely bonkers how amazingly well that the melodies are in that. That album fucking killed it for me. I was like, dude, psh, metal can be tight. Metal can be melodic. Let's do it. The thing about that record, I feel like it's a, it's a generational level record. Um, uh-huh. because I kind of, I mean, I don't want to sound like an old dude that doesn't like new music. I love new music, but in some ways that is the pinnacle of the technical death metal style. Yeah. It gets, I mean, it took a, it took a more like computer based approach turn for the, like, like a lot of the newer bands are doing stuff that just like, sounds like it was generated in a computer, you know, like whether they tracked it live or whatever, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like the actual composition of things. Yes. Um, that epitaph is just like, I don't, it's like an opus to me. It's, it's got like movements and scenes and stuff and it changes and it's like almost like Beethoven wrote it. And it's kind of like going a little crazy, but it's, it's to that level where it's, it's different than what is out now. I wish that Muhammad would do it again, but I heard he's like got some crazy job or something, so he doesn't. I think wanna... I heard he works as an engineer for BMW. That could be a wives' tale, yeah. but that's what I've heard for like years now. I totally that respect he... that though, because that's yeah, cool. me too. I'm into that. I'm a car guy, so I like that. I mean, look, I don't subscribe to the fact or the idea that you have to do the same thing your whole life. I mean, my. Mm-hmm. If I did, then I'd probably hate myself because uh, I haven't done the same thing my whole life. But I mean, I really do believe that people go through phases in life and artists do too. And I kind of think that it might be better to have Epitaph a work of perfection mm-hmm. and not have him spoil it. You know, if he can't top it, that's okay too. Yeah, like, yeah, it's totally fine. It's it's there in history. It, Serves yeah, as inspiration it, for a lot of people, so let it let it be that little written in no stone. No one can take it away. Yeah, it's, it's great. I need it on vinyl <laughs> in every format, just in case an EMP hits and destroys all data. I just need it. I completely agree. You know, man, you like you said about computer generated music. Um, there's something about the way that it sounds where it does have. It's like the. It's like the first thing in the style to where it sounds computer tight, mm-hmm. but it sounds like humans made it. Like, because it's got feel, like you said, it's got movements and and it's like a composition, but it's got, in the weirdest way, it's got feel and feelings. And uh, 
it doesn't sound like an algorithm spat it out. Yeah, I completely agree. So for those of you who are not huge death metal fans, uh, you know, maybe open your mind and check out Epitaph by Necrophagist because it really is a record that spawned a whole generation for better or for worse. And there is some insane music on there. Like, you just give it a shot. I mean, we're talking about a record that came out in 2004 or 2003 as mm. if it's still the shit because it is the shit. It is. So that said, let's talk about uh, Polyphia. Alrighty. So The boys. The boys, yeah. So... You are mixing Crush on Nail the Mix this month, which mm-hmm. is a song by Polyphia, for those who don't know. And for people who don't know, Polyphia is a cool instrumental band that's kind of like, it's not metal. It's kind of like modern fusion mixed yeah. with like badass lead guitars, but it's totally catchy and then also sounds like synth pop. Like I, I don't, I don't really know how to describe it, but it's, it's infectious. It's, it's it's infectious. It's so yep. catchy. Yeah, that was that was the plan. We uh, back when I first found out about them, my friend Zach was on YouTube going through like looking at all the the new stuff, and he found the the video for Trans Transcendence or Transcend. It was uh, obviously yeah, it was a Transcend video, and he was showing it to me, and I was like, wow, that's that's really awesome. These kids are shredding hard, so I like I reached out to them on Facebook, and they were like, "Wow, we were we were gonna think about reaching out to you to record," and I was like, "Well, let's do it." And uh, nice. I think I think they ended up doing like an Indiegogo, and then he came out, we tracked it, wrote it, and that was Muse, you know. And a year later, or a year and a half later, we did Renaissance, I think, and that's the one that Crush is on. And. It, real quick about reaching out to them on Facebook. Was that a normal thing that you used to do or that you do? No. To book? Ne- which is weird. Like, I never do that. I never reach out to bands on Facebook unless I'm like, wow, like, I really want to put myself out there to, like, like I want to work with these dudes. So, like, I had to or else, like, you know, the universe might not have came together at that point. But it Sounds like um, the universe was conspiring in your favor, though. Yeah, it could have been, yeah. Well, I mean, if they were going to hit you up. Yeah, yeah. We both had the same idea, which was cool. What do you think it is about them and you that, like, that works? I think it, I mean, first of all, they're the boys. Um, really good relationship with the band. Um, and I think it's it's just that we're so alike in our uh, in guitar. I think guitar is, like, a centric thing in, in music in general, composition in general. Um, they, they wanted to be... Tim said that they wanted to do something that was different. So, and I was like, well, how about we like take instrumental music and then format it in a way to where it's it's almost just like regular music with vocals, but we just do the vocal lines and the guitars, you know? So he was like, yes, yeah, that's sweet. Let's do that. And that's the kind of format that we always use to, to get in the songs and get them going. Um, Obviously, the music's evolving and always changing, so we don't like stick to rules. But that was the guideline for the first record, and loose guidelines for the second one is just to to write the top lines, make the top lines dope. Those got to be there, you know. Then we'll work the rest of the song. And like most pop songs are just vocal lines and in a beat with like obviously there's the rhythmic side of the beat and then the melodic side of the beat. But the vocal lines we do on the guitar for the most part, and then uh, the bass and drums, and we add that, and then start fleshing out some of the synth stuff, 
and then we just build it up from there. That's really what sets Polyphia apart, I think, is that it's instrumental, but it's lyrical. It's yeah. melo- It's actually melodic, and I don't mean melodic in the way that metal people tend to think of melodic, which is like not because not actually melodic. <laughs> well, like I remember when like melodic death metal became a thing, and suddenly there were harmonies on guitars, and people were like, "It's melodic," but it's mm-hmm. not because it's just riffs that repeat over and over and over, and don't vary. Like uh, Bolivia have actual melodies that evolve and start somewhere and have a beginning, middle and end. And they're catchy as fuck. Yeah. That's, that's what something we don't like to compromise on is, is catchiness. It's gotta be mouth riffable. You know, you gotta be able to, I was actually going to just ask you that. I was going to just ask you, do you guys sing these parts when writing them? Oh yeah. And sometimes in a joking fashion too, like we'll be sitting like on a break playing GTA, just mouth riffing or just anywhere. Like there's so many antics that go on with them. It's it's so funny, but yeah, that's a big thing is to to get it to stick in people's heads. So whenever we're on a break, I'm always humming stuff. If it's good, it'll stick in your head. So then you'll know when you take a break and it's still in your head. You're like, okay, let's let's commit to that and keep it going. Man, one of the best techniques I ever learned from a guitar teacher actually was to sing or hum the solo while you're writing or improvising it Mm -hmm. and nine out of ten times the results would be just so much more musical so so much more memorable and nice i guess yeah definitely that that would be a good technique for sure just get your brain in tune with it and try to get in the same page and i mean the more you hear it in different ways the the more familiar you'll be with it and the more the more chance you'll make a good decision on whether to change it or not. So, And also, if you're humming it, if you're keeping that, if you're keeping the singability of the line as a priority and the catchiness, mm-hmm. it will restrict you from going overboard on the technical side and to, you know, like yeah. ruining it with technique, basically. I agree, yeah. Like, we didn't definitely don't want to shred it up too much when, you, when you're trying to get it to stick in someone's head. I mean... There are some lines that people... Dude, there is like, plenty of shred on yeah. Bolivia stuff. Yeah. A- Aesthetic by BT Bam is one of those songs that... Uh, uh, it's like... That song always stuck in my head. And I was like, wow. I kind of like tried... When I did IAA stuff, I always try to keep that kind of vibe and like do that. Because I think that the rhythm of that part is the catchy part, you know? And then it has... Obviously, the notes follow, but it's a rhythmic approach to writing a, a catchy riff, which is mm-hmm. something that I, I try to focus on a little bit heavier. It'll tell me about that a little bit more. That's kind of like the complete opposite of the Polyphia approach, it sounds like. However, um, you still did sing the line. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like a, when you, if you think about like hip hop songs or, or pop songs, you'll notice a lot of like popular motifs, like in hip hop uh, sub hits, for example. Always dots, dude. Boom, boom, boom. They're always like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I, th- I think it's for good reason, though, because people have that, like, boom, 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 that beat, like, ingrained in them, and it's just a head bobber, you know? it. You catch, like, some of the beats on the up head bob and some of them on the down head bob, and it just, like, kind of forces you to move, you know? And that's, that's a proven thing. And it's been like that. So, like, there is psychology involved in in the decision of a rhythm of a musical piece. 
So I think that uh, trying to utilize that might help people like write some more unique kind of stuff that'll stick a little harder than uh, than just trying to find the the perfect notes and not like wondering about the rhythm. You know, the, I think the rhythmic side of composition is is equally as important as the melodic side. Well, the melodic side is the part you sing. The rhythm is the part that makes you move. Yeah, and they're yeah. both really important definitely yeah if you can feel it then people are gonna like it like if someone connects with it then they'll 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 keep listening to you and be a fan so pretty important in some in some ways i feel like uh you need to pick you almost need to pick one and become a master of it though you could do both but like uh there's reasons for why a band like meshuga for instance can be great and have virtually no melodies because their rhythms are just so next level. Yeah. But it's next level and it makes people move. Um, I'm just picking a metal example, but um, I feel like then you look at an act like the Beatles, which, mm-hmm. you know, let's, let's face it, rhythm wasn't like the biggest part of that sound, but yeah, the melodies sure. are just amazing you can sing them all day long yeah definitely well also like i'm not talking about just only rhythm section i'm talking about the rhythm of the melody like mm-hmm. like that has a that that to it and it's not just the notes it's like the actual cadence of the part which is uh what i'm like more focused on uh as far as i mean not like like it's a priority over the melody but you can't just let it you know, let it be and not not worry about that kind of stuff. So I think that, like, getting it across that way is mm-hmm. definitely a thing. Like, when I'm doing a, a scratch melody, I'll try a billion different ways against whatever, like, against the backbeat or whatever. And usually I end up pretty close to where I started, but with minor modifications that, to me, make it sound a million times better and more cohesive and symmetrical, too. And when you do that, um, are you doing it, are you playing it? Or are you just sliding it around? Um, are you usually in MIDI? That that seems to be uh, mm-hmm. the like a piano. That seems to be the best way because it's closer to like the human. Uh, I guess it, the sound of the human voice, like when you get the the piano key hitting. So it kind of gives me a better vibe. If I were to use a guitar, it might not come across how I want. Plus, I would be doing gnar vibrato all the time and <laughs> you can't have that in there i just can't help myself sometimes i mean sometimes also with guitar it's there's a reason for why composition majors are told to learn piano uh, mm-hmm. there's some and i love guitar i mean i play guitar but i feel like as a composition instrument it does have its limitations and there's some ways in which piano is far superior oh um, yeah and i think that a serious writer uh should at least learn some. Yeah, piano is like knowing like the most popular programming language of all time. Like the one that all the other ones are based on. It's, it's like it's cut and dry like it's very simple like the 12 notes are there and then you have 12 of a higher octave and it's all symmetrical all the way up. All the keys are the same size. Like they're the same distance away from each other. And with a guitar, by nature, the way you're dividing the string to get the certain notes, like everything is like planned to get smaller, all the frets get smaller, and you have to worry about that. So like I think that's why piano players shred so hard, dude. Like they mm-hmm. do you have that the reach, like when you're reaching an octave, it's an octave like if I am trying to hammer on uh, I don't know, a root and a five. 
down low at the, in the neck, it's like kind of hard, you know. But if higher in the neck, it gets easier. But with with a piano, it's it's the same everywhere. It's more consistent. It's also a lot to think about with guitar. So like you know, uh, the same note will appear multiple times on the fretboard, and so it's not just that the distances between frets are different. Like you got to take into consideration the fingerings, position, like all that stuff. Yeah. And while it's one thing when you're playing the song, it's another thing when you're when not not necessarily when you're writing the initial version, but when you're really trying to tweak a composition. Sometimes it really is a hindrance to have a guitar in your hands because of all those complexities. Like you don't want to be thinking about that when you're yeah. trying to make the best compositional choice. You're going to load it up with octave chords because those are easy. <laughs> you're uh, just love those. <laughs> toss in an octave line. Why not? That would yeah, happen that, on a piano. Ben, octaves on guitar are such an easy out. Yeah. I mean, they're cool. They're, it's they a are. good way that's to do why, counter melody. I mean, that's why they are an easy out because they are fucking cool. Yeah. But but they are like your get-out-of-jail-free card. Like, well, my lead solo tone... Up high doesn't sound that great. Throw an octave on it. Instant cool. It's instant cool. Yeah. Um. Question about guitar. Speaking of guitar, a lot of people say that distorted guitars are a pain point for them in their mixing process, and they used to be for me too. And I think for everybody that I know who mixes, uh, what are some of the things that you do to get a big sound out of your sustain instruments and for making guitars less of a painful event? Well. I, the first thing I do is obviously listen to the tone, see what's going on with it. Um, what do you mean by that? Like I'll I'll listen to the tone, and if if I immediately if it hurts my ears, then the first thing I'm going to do is try to find that frequency area and knock it down a little, and then reassess. Because I mean, you're going to have a fundamental note, which is the note in which you're playing, and that'll have harmonics above it. And then you'll get into the area up in the spectrum where it's like your presence, which is going to cut through your mix. And then right above that is like the two and a half to three K area, which is that can get really hard in your ears. Some people like it for some reason. I I mean, Ugh. I'm never, never boosting that area on a guitar because it's <laughs> it's in there and it's it's happening. Dude. Well, how like, much more do you need? <laughs> yeah, you don't. I, and then I think your ears are kind of like genetically engineered to be sensitive in that area like babies cry in that area and like it's it i don't know it that area is very loud and i think there's a bump in our hearing range right there so i'm always cutting that area out of stuff that's like static like a guitar like not static like the same thing at all times i'm talking about the spectrum like when you distort that you're adding those frequencies across the entire spectrum and it's just it's like white noise almost so those frequencies will be there a lot so you got to kind of get rid of them nip them in the bud to get them out and then then you can focus on the other areas like the brightness like is it bright against the other stuff is it is the note coming through um is it too boomy what do i need to do to fix that like the, the first thing i would do is like definitely notch out that eq find the area that hurts and then and then dump it down and see if it's adding or taking away and make those decisions and then move on. Well, one thing that I think a lot of people have trouble with is when they start finding those pain points and those upper mids is not going too far. Like, because, you know, when you start listening to distortion, you start hearing all the individual noise and like Mm -hmm. it all becomes noise and you can really easily just drive the car off the cliff and like 
totally neuter it and just over oh, yeah. EQ. How how do you how do you prevent from doing that, or how do you counter, um, uh, you know, those cuts in order to not let your guitar sound dull? Sometimes I'll just go down the rabbit hole, dude. I'll over EQ it so much, and I'll just be like, all right, this is adding to it. This is cool. Like I'm going for it, and then it, then I'll like take a break from it and come back and just disable the EQ plugin that I went ham on. And then I'm like, oh, well, it's only really doing this. So then I'll take another one and then go in that area. And then it'll be like, voila, there it is. So you just kind of have to like train yourself to know that if you go crazy with the EQ, you're probably wasting your time. And there's probably a simpler solution to do what you need to do. But I mean, it all depends on the material you're working with. Of course. It like again going back to the pick technique thing, it, they're like squeaky picking. You ever had to deal with that? Like someone's oh tremolo picking, and it's like, <laughs> beep, 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 beep. yes, like, yeah. You gotta you gotta get that out of there. You gotta find that frequency and notch that boy out. Sometimes, so it all depends on the on the stuff that you're working with. But for the most part, um, the note has to be audible. It's got to be popping out in the mix. So that's. That your boosts and cuts will depend on whatever else is in your mix, and then the brightness to compete with like cymbals and stuff up top. Those are the three things I kind of try to focus on with guitar. Um, when you were earlier in your mixing career, did you ever find yourself EQ going down the rabbit hole to where you'll EQ and use up all the bands, and then not quite there yet, so you add another EQ, oh, use yeah. up all the bands, <laughs> add another Until- EQ. <laughs> Until I discovered the the EQ plugins where you can just create unlimited bands, yeah, I, I would do that for sure. But I mean, that's bad. You don't want to be doing that. No, sometimes no, no. It, yeah, sometimes it it calls for it if you're I don't know trying to restore audio that was recorded through someone's tailpipe or something. But it's it's not like which I don't recommend. Yeah, don't record your tailpipe. It's bad. <laughs> but yeah, over EQ is like. It can ruin something real, real fast because there's there's harmonics and stuff. It could cause like phase shift. Like there's a lot of things you don't think about too. Like if you're if you're notching like around a common crossover point for most speakers, like say like 2500 hertz, if you're notching like super crazy right there, you can get issues for reproduction of that sound on different systems. So there's tons of like things that you can't. The EQ can hurt, but you just got to be sparing with it and not not go crazy with it. Last question. And uh, I know that you're going to go through this um, in Nail the Mix, but for those people who are not subscribed, and you should be, nailthemix.com slash Polyphia, uh, can we talk about the bass tone on Crush? Because it's so awesome. Yeah, basically, um, going down to the the source, we did the bongo uh, five string, the music band bongo five string. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm pretty sure we use the bridge pickup and split so it's one coil like a single coil on um, the bridge position and flat eq on the way in um through an api preamp and then from there i split the bass into two different channels one being my fundamental which is like the notes and you want to take that and process it separately from the the actual like harmonically rich upper end of the spectrum because if you put too much of that low end in a guitar amp, the guitar amp's just going to react to that low end way too much, and you're not going to like get the nuances out that you want to be out of it. So I think a common technique with a lot of people is to split the bass up like that, and then 
I'm always filtering the low end out before I go into whatever like amp I'm going to use for top end. Um, just because it, the amp doesn't have to deal with all that energy down below and it can focus on like the peak frequencies are going to be the ones that you want to be amplified and, and compressed in there. And then you have your other track that's like your perfect, like low end control right there. And then I sum them back together. Um, I'm pretty sure for the, the top end, I used a like waves GTR tool rack, mm -hmm. like the guitar amps. Um, I think it was, it might've been the drive one, but it, it was relatively clean. So like I'll, I'll get some harmonic saturation going on with the amp sim and then I'll, I'll find problem frequencies. Like with the slapping, whenever you do a slap, there's always harmonics that you got to kind of find and get rid of. And because they sometimes can get pretty loud and ringy and it's annoying to listen to. But um, from there, uh, I just do a little compression and then compression on the, the low frequency track for sure. A lot of it, maybe in some L1 limiting because I, I don't give a crap. <laughs> like I want it to be <laughs> controlled. Like I want it, I want yeah, it. Absolutely. Should, the bass should be in one level for me. Like if I want it to move, I'll move it with automation. Like, but I definitely want to make sure that the bass is like, the, I'm talking about the low frequency of the bass, like the actual bass part. Mm -hmm. That's got to stay in one spot for me. Uh, bass rider is good for that too. Yeah, I, I completely subscribe to the keep a firm grasp on the low end uh, school of mixing. Mm -hmm. Also, I think there's a slight subharmonic uh, generator going on on that low track, just because like the song is like has a lot of low, super low sub stuff, and I wanted mm -hmm. the bass to like kind of compete with that stuff. And it sounds great. Like it really does. Yeah, thank it's you. such a and such a unique uh, bass tone too. So Nick, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Very much looking forward to hanging out um, in a couple of weeks in Florida for Nail the Mix. Same here, man. Can't wait to get that weather. It might be kind of cold. <laughs> it, oh, it's bummer. Dude, we just did the summit and like everyone was expecting it to be like, you know, 80 degrees. It was like 40 degrees the whole time in Orlando. That's all right. I'll settle for palm tree views and alligators nearby. That's that's, that's that fine. will happen. <laughs> I can I can, can promise can, you that. <laughs> can we go to the Congo River Golf Place? Every time I go to Orlando, we go golf with alligators. It's sweet. Yeah, sure, dude. We'll deal. We definitely go afterwards. <laughs> awesome. Cool. All right, tight. Thank you for having me on. To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit urm.com/podcast and subscribe today.